This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. The killing of George Floyd changed something in America. A broad spectrum of white people began to consider, in a seemingly new way, the reality of systematic racism. Is that change momentary or permanent? Mike Larrick Dyson is a black man, a widely respected scholar of race, and a Baptist minister. He has spent much of his career writing about and grappling with the black experience in America. His reasoning is clear. His oratory is stirring. Dyson's latest book is Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. It is made up of seven letters Dyson wrote to victims of racial violence. Elijah McLean, Emmett Till, Eric Garner, Brianna Taylor, Hadia Pendleton, Sandra Bland, and the Reverend Clementa Pinckney. The work challenges white Americans to come, finally, to a long-delayed reckoning with anti-blackness, institutionalized police violence, systematic racial injustice, and, he hopes, the possibility of national redemption. Dyson hasn't given up on his faith in humanity, but he asks, quote, How far are we willing to go? Are we prepared to sacrifice tradition and convention for genuine transformation? In this episode of Speakers Forum, Mike Larrick Dyson has a conversation with racial justice advocate Robin DiAngelo, author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. This conversation was presented by Town Hall Seattle on December 8th. Town Hall's event manager, Candace Wilkinson-Davis, moderated the Q&A. Hello, Michael. Hey, Robin. How are you? (laughs) I am good, and I am so excited to be able to talk to you uh, in general because of your brilliance and in particular because I could listen to you for hours. You're a Um, (laughs) This book is beautiful and heartbreaking, devastating, powerful, Um, and I particularly love the way that you weave into very personal and intimate letters history. So you're showing that while these are real people, right, because this book is framed as Each chapter is a letter to a a black person who has died, uh, mostly by the result of police violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And you weave history into this really personal um, letter to these people. And there's a couple of things that that accomplishes. Certainly that these are real individuals who had lives, who had aspirations, whose names we should know and we should say. But you also make the point that these are not isolated to these specific individuals, that there's a thread that connects this across history. Uh, I'd love you to just speak to that. Yeah. 
Well, thanks so much for joining me in conversation, uh, having admired your work for so long and your uh, audacity, your courage and your brilliance. And I'm grateful for you to be here tonight in conversation with me. Yes, it is extremely important to say their names, to weave um, a tapestry of collective grievance, hardship and hurt, while at the same time acknowledging the individual basis of their, you know, glory, their grief, their struggle, um, their posthumous acclaim, which ironically enough, perhaps even paradoxically enough, we only know them for the most part after they die. We didn't know these individuals before they passed for the most part. And so I did want to have a conversation with them, not about them. And as you say, these letters uh, framing a, converse, a conversation that is crucial for the nation to have, that is crucial for our communities to have. And I wanted to do the epistolary form to write a letter so that I could have a more intimate engagement and a more familial uh, feel. These are, after all, our family members, people we know, people in our neighborhoods, people in our communities and our culture, the kind of kinship bond that is established. And I wanted to do that uh, by means of the rhetoric and the textures of uh, the letters themselves, but also the form, the genre, to evoke a kind of intimacy with them uh, that we've come to know them uh, through brutal circumstances, through trauma. And perhaps it is re-traumatizing for some, and I understand that. But I think about the comparative loss we would have if we wouldn't dig deeply into the suffering that they endured in order to tell the truth about how they died so that we could prevent this from happening in the future. But I thought it was important to, to tell those stories, to weave history and psychology and sociology and social theory and understandings of culture and pop culture and the like into these narratives so that we could make them more presentable, uh, more accessible, but also uh, show the depth of uh, the kind of consideration we must engage in order to really understand what happened to them and what we've got to do about it. Well, and you do such a beautiful job of that. Um, and you do make the point throughout that that white America doesn't know uh, these people, right? That we live separate, separated lives, segregated lives. I mm. often think about it as I was not meant to know or love you. I mm. was not meant to see your humanity. Right. Uh, and so I see you trying to human, bring their humanity to us. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the consequences of, I would say people, but let's be honest, white America, not knowing mm. our history, not being able to pull those threads and trace um, that, that trajectory across time. Right. Um, it's beautifully stated. I think a lot is lost in the process. Um, <clears throat> as I try to point out in the book, uh, using um, the story of Fannie Lou Hamer, mm. who said that, you know, the, the problem with white America is that white Americans saw us as inferior and therefore put us behind them. And when they put us behind them, we have to learn everything possible and necessary about white America in order to survive. Is Massa in a good mood? 
Is the landlord doing well today? Uh, is the person driving this plantation uh, full of good or bad energy? Is it likely that my employer uh, will speak negatively of me if I ask for a raise? So from the plantation to the post-industrial corporate structure, black people have had to master whiteness, have had to understand white people because our survival so often depended upon it. And even when uh, you know black autonomy is put forth through black nationalist narratives saying, why should we be concerned about white people? We should be concerned about a black universe as normative and therefore you know, dismiss the necessity of any deference or acknowledgement of the white world. But in the real world, and the truth of the matter is that knowing white folk has made black folk survive, has meant, meant that we have been able to master whiteness in order to survive, to struggle um, against the limits that have been imposed upon us. And we had to know how to trick, how to resist, how to con, how to be uh, con, you know, cunning and clever, um, but also to navigate, you know, Br'er Rabbit and the Br'er, you know, the Briar Patch and the Eshuelegba and all of the tricksters that have been generated within African and Black American folklore uh, toward the end of trying to figure out how we can get over on master, how we can uh, also derive a living in the midst of a white supremacist culture that really denied us access to our own uh, humanity. So I think what white brothers and sisters miss is that they don't have that sense of necessity when it comes to black life. Take it or leave it. Uh, we're curious about it. We'll study it. If not, no skin off our our backs, no water, you know, off of our necks. There's nothing lost when we don't know about black life. Now, when we hear Aretha Franklin or John Coltrane or Toni Morrison, when we read her or James Baldwin or when we take in Jay-Z or Beyonce, we understand what we're, you know, being treated to, uh, a festivity, a joie de vivre, a kind of serious investment in joy and um, a, a kind of understanding of the soulful capacity of blackness and the magnitude of our humanity articulated through sports, through pop culture, through literature, through preaching. And so they get a sense of that in the most visible avatars and symbols of our culture. But for the most part, the ordinary black person is obscured. And the genius and the courage and the power of that ordinary blackness is somehow deflected and unknown to many white brothers and sisters, which is why they're surprised in so many instances. Think about the fact that, to take an example, when Barack Obama was running for president and the sermons of Jeremiah Wright came to the fore. Well, black people have been hearing preaching like that for hundreds of years, um, a couple hundred years at least, and more than that. And so you know, in the black public sphere that is often rendered private because lack of white curiosity deadened and deflected knowledge of blackness. Jeremiah Wright's church wasn't closed before Obama ran for president. It was not a matter of white concern, of white import, of white empathy, of white engagement. For the most part, I'm not saying no white person knew who Jeremiah Wright was, but I'm saying white culture en masse, uh, the broader political sphere, white identity was not impacted by and therefore uh, unconcerned with Jeremiah Wright. But once 
those sermons became, you know, an issue. And he became a bete noir, and it became uh, a, a representative of the presidents, that is to be Obama's ostensible hatred of whiteness. Then all of a sudden, they were glomming onto his sermons and deconstructing every uh, syllable and looking at every adverb and looking at every uh, announcement uh, made in the church because all of a sudden it became of interest. So black people are used to existing in a parallel universe where even our great genius, for the most part, is ignored by white people. And they're deprived of not only an acknowledgement of our humanity, but an enriching of their humanity as well. Yeah, I, I see that that creates a false sense of relationship for white people. Like we we worship these heroes, these images, these singers, these athletes. And so we think we have relationships across race, but we don't actually have any authentic sustained relationships. So mm-hmm. given that, do you think there can be authentic relationships between black and white people? Oh, I think absolutely right. But as you've indicated, it has to be in an arena, in a sphere, in a zone where whiteness is willing to be vulnerable, where whiteness is willing to unmask itself, right? The pandemic has taught us the virtue of masks, but as Paul Lawrence Dunbar said, we wear the masks. We've been wearing masks for centuries. We've been covering, coding, uh, distancing ourselves from the dominant white society, smiling when we felt grief inside, uh, stepping up to the plate and in the midst of our suffering and the trauma we have endured, performing nonetheless, uh, the irregardless character of blackness, no matter what we confront, we've had to be strong. And so we've projected a mask. We've worn a mask, a facade uh, in the technical sense of the word, where we've had to cover and not reveal to the white world what we were truly feeling, which is why um, partly the brilliance of your work in terms of white fragility, when white folk ever really hear what black people think, right? White brothers and sisters say what they believe all the time, except in specific instances where they don't want black people to feel that they're racist or they're fearful of saying something that will offend in polite company, but behind the doors and among themselves, uh, mm-hmm. they are constantly speaking about their perceptions of black people. But, you know, it's it's amazing that when they finally hear what we really think, we've been holding back, we've been moderating, we've been modulating, we've been refusing to expose the full range of our beliefs. We've been refusing to express the full energy of our disgust. Because to do that, first of all, would get us caught up in a kind of an emotional Uh, Catch 22, where once having started, we may not be able to finish in the appropriate fashion or to contain ourselves. So we would rather suppress it. And, and, And in one sense, this is why black people understood Barack Obama's reticence and hesitancy to address race, because his experience was our experience writ large. But but when black white folk finally here get a taste of our minds. Right. Who is the black Donald Trump? Who is the black Dr. Phil? Are you stupid? Or Donald Trump, you're just stupid and idiotic. What about if we said to white folk, you are one of the most insanely unintellectual, unintelligent people on the face of the earth. You Yahoo from where, right? We would be assaulted despite the kind of, you know, classist 
implications in what I just said in terms of how black people might respond to white brothers and sisters. We can't tell the truth. We can't show our disgust. So we hide it. But in those moments when white brothers and sisters unmask, as you've talked about so brilliantly, the 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 kind of patina uh, to, to mix metaphors of superiority, when they take off uh, the garments of their alleged and ostensible superiority, when they're able to be vulnerable and to show who they are in their fragile and vulnerable humanity, then yes, there are times when black and white folk obviously know each other, can engage each other. And I'm not suggesting that only when white people are vulnerable and fragile, I'm saying when they're willing to tell the truth about who they are. And that could be brusque, that could be indifferent, that could be raucous, and they can meet black people who are on the same level. And then the two shall meet. So yes, there is the possibility of real knowing, but it takes more than a notion to try to unmask, uh, get real, or reveal the truth of the internal dimensions of self-reflection and self-knowledge. And it takes a strong person to acknowledge, you know what, I come from a culture that has lied, that has not told the truth, that has not been open and honest and willing to know Black people in their intimate familiarity that can be delivered in a relationship. But yes, because interracial relationships, I would hope that, you know, white and black folk are able to know and love each other. But even there, you know, there are layers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you hear interracial couples speak, especially the black partner sometimes, you know, when X, Y, and Z, my husband, my wife, you know, said this after 15 years, I didn't know that that's what they thought. And I had to check them or I had to ask them what they were talking about. And I'm sure the exchange goes both ways. So, yeah, I think it's really possible, but we have to be intentional and we have to be open and honest. Yeah. And it doesn't manifest through the thin veneer of niceness. <laughs> um, right, exactly. And you um, and you relate your chapter, your letter to Sandra Bland to white comfort. And you talk a mm -hmm. lot about police and that she basically wasn't going to uphold their comfort by, you know, she mm -hmm. talked back. She didn't right. play that game. Right. Um, and so the, the theme of the relationship between white supremacy and policing is all the way through the book. Um, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you help us understand the concept of defund the police and mm -hmm. what you think might be misunderstood in in. Um, strong reaction to that phrase. Right. Yeah, I think, um, look, it does weave throughout the book because so many Black people have lost their lives interacting with police. Mm. And I wish our former president had taken a greater measure of the desperation that Black people feel and their progressive allies, their angst, their anger, sometimes their hostility, because they have been so dismissed, so ignored, that I wish he would have said more than that kind of, you know, toss off phrase, you know, if you're interested as I am, how interested are you, Mr. President? And do you not interested in defunding police? You were the president. You weren't trying to really shift resources in a significant fashion away from the militarized zones that police departments now are. Now, to a degree, yes, he was trying to, you know, de-escalate um, the, the stockpile, so to speak of a militaristic weaponry that could be handed so easily uh, to police departments, transferred to them from, you know, uh, war zones and the, the machinery that had been used there that was no longer being used there that was now being transferred to domestic police forces, which has uh, amped up and uh, armed them quite literally 
with weapons of mass black destruction. I wish he would have been a little bit more sensitive and said, I understand why people are outraged because black people are dying. Wouldn't you come up with radical reimagination for policing? Wouldn't you understand why when their backs are against the wall, they feel that they have little reason but to figure out a new way? Because let's be honest, and we could have pushed the president a little bit more. Haven't we tried reforming the police? We've, we've been trying that. That ain't nothing new, right? Under your administration, until Eric Holder really pushed the issue and those consent decrees were being generated in major police departments, police departments, by the way, that were calling Obama the N-word and many of them, uh, some of them were caught doing so. So they were demonizing him personally. And to his credit, he always tried to remain above the fray and not to be personally implicated in the process. But a little bit too cool means that your existential position, because you got bodyguards in the Secret Service and the brothers and sisters on the street ain't got that. And so a little bit too cool because you now universalize your particular experience. Plus, he's speaking as Pharaoh. He ain't speaking as the people in the street trying to be involved with the exodus, right? The irony is Pharaoh looks like the people who are making exodus for the first time. And I, I don't mean this disparagingly. I'm talking about as a job description. You are the major political figure. That's what I mean by Pharaoh. But using the biblical uh, metaphor, or at least the example, if you're Pharaoh, the people who are saying, Pharaoh, let my people go, are your people. <laughs> and in this instance, they are saying to President, uh, former President Obama, look, defund simply means we want to move resources. Like in L.A., they, uh, $150 million, they were moved toward other issues away from the police. Public safety is not exhausted by the police. There are other means, mechanisms, and media uh, for, you know, policing in America, or at least for public safety. Um, and maybe if we decentralized police departments so that their tasks could be outsourced, and at least among many other departments, then they could participate, but they wouldn't be dominant, and they wouldn't be exclusive, because right now they're relatively exclusive. So when you call the cops because somebody's having a psychotic breakdown and the cops show up, they ain't got no experience, many of them. They don't have training. They don't know how to identify a person who may be coming at them and thinking that that person could hurt them. Um, and to, to de-escalate or to, hurt, to contain that threat in a certain way. So defunding the police means let's figure out new ways to assign value to human beings by assigning funds to other arenas of public safety that would then undercut uh, the swelling and swollen budgets of police departments. Because as other uh, uh, departments are being cut, police people are seeing a rise and an uptick in some of the investment in their particular departments. We don't mind defunding education. We don't mind defunding social services for poor folk in America, but we seem to have a problem with defunding the police. That's because they have extraordinarily powerful unions that are literally out of control, that need to be policed themselves. So I wish our former president had evinced a, a kind of deep and profound sensitivity toward those who feel desperately outraged by the apparently unlimited exercise of power 
that these police departments do. And we know that because of uh, qualified immunity, even when they get arrested, it's a rare thing. And usually they're not going to get convicted or usually because of qualified immunity, they're not held to personal account by the Constitution as a public servant for acting on the job in defense of the, of the public good, as they might define it. And therefore, even at the loss of life, they are not held personally accountable. So, yeah, when I say when when many people talk about defund the police, they ain't talking about yanking the police off the street and making sure they don't have jobs. It's assigning them the valuable intervention that might mean less uh, carnage for black and brown and indigenous communities and a respect for human life. I'll end by saying this in this section. You just saw the tape that came out a couple days ago where the white guy is talking to the police after they approach his SUV. He's got a gun on his seat that they see and they beg him to get out and he refuses to. They draw their weapons, at least one of them, talking to the man and he says, how dare you? And I have a right as a citizen of America. He is fighting with them as if he is equally armed not just with his gun, but with his knowledge and his whiteness against theirs. And he is pitting the, the belief that they will not engage in a hostile act that will take his life from him. He has such utter confidence, that's the revelation there, that he will not be shot, that he will not be hurt, that he will not be harmed, that he will not be killed, that he takes off while they have their guns drawn and they do not shoot him. Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, is walking around his car. And when he opens his door, they claim to have seen a knife in there and shoot him five times, shot at him seven times, I think hit him about five times, just by spotting with their eyes. No attempt to pick the knife up. And this young white man has the gun next to him. This is the kind of thing that I wish Obama would show some sensitivity toward. And I think Charles Blow's article, Charles Blow's article in the New York Times by saying it's a peculiar post-presidency where you're basically chiding young black people. And I think for the first time, there's progress. Obama's been facing a little criticism within black communities, communities that were loath to critique him uh, before but are now more willing to at least engage him in some reasonable conversation that we should have engaged in when he was president of the United States of America as well. Yeah. You know, your, your letter to George Floyd for me, that chapter was probably the hardest to read. It, it, you break it down almost, you know, second by second. It's yeah. devastating. Um, and you identify what appears to you to be, quote, ghastly satisfaction that Chauvin seemed to have in crushing George Floyd's neck. Yeah. Now, given that we can think about police as amplified whiteness or certainly as the um, uh, policing of the boundaries of whiteness and white mm -hmm. supremacy. And because I know for me, I always want to say, OK, I don't relate to a police officer who would do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I am not separate from this system. I have my own version of internalized white supremacy, right? right? And so do you see or how do you see a similar ghastly satisfaction in white people who would be horrified at seeing and were horrified at what they saw on that tape? What is the more mainstream everyday version uh, of that look like? 
from well-meaning folks like me. Yeah, well, look, I mean, you've helped deconstruct and demythologize what whiteness acts like, what it does, how it behaves, the anatomy of whiteness. My dear friend, Dr. Jennifer Wiley, uh, the former president of Franklin High School there. I, 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 do you know her? Yeah. She's on. I saw her say hello. Hi, Jennifer. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, okay. Hey, <laughs> Dr. Wiley. An extraordinary woman. Yeah. And I've had many, many conversations about her. A robust conception of introspection, of self-critique, uh, as you are, uh, as you possess, of, of, of really self-critique and willingness to put that on the line to say, uh, in the vulnerability I was speaking about, uh, and, and can white and black people really know each other? You and I, Robin and Michael, Michael and Jennifer, right? To know each other because we expose our innards to each other and we take the masks off. So the everyday version of the kind of ghastly satisfaction uh, might not be the, uh, the knee of Derek Chauvin boring into the mortally depressed column of George Floyd so that as he begs for relief, as he begs for breath, he is denied, he is ignored. So to me in the everyday world, it's when, you know, I go down the street, I must tell you, I go into buildings and unless I speak to white folk first, they rarely speak to me. Now, black folks say, what up? Sabna, are you doing? The head nod. Now, I know that's cultural telegraphing. I know that's the semiotics of Black identity, the significations, especially of Black masculinity, but Black people uh, in general, and the kind of connectivity that we articulate uh, as, a, as a predicate of our cultural uh, and, and, uh, and our cultural and racial self-understanding. So I'm not trying to impose that on everybody, but it is sometimes extremely harsh. And I'm a well-known black person who gets along with all kinds of folk and I'm in the white world all the time, but we're in gatherings. If I don't go up to the circle, they ain't coming around me, right? If I, if, 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 they seem to be uninterested in who I am, even as a well-known black person. And when I'm among some of my colleagues, whether in media, or sometimes in academe, but especially in media, well-known people, as is, it's as if you don't even exist. So the reason I'm so intense and passionate and so defensive of ordinary Black people, because I know what that feels like. And I got a name and fame and some celebrity and some status, and I am rendered invisible. That kind of casual disgust the displacement. It doesn't have to be an act of passion of disgust. It can be a kind of structural prohibition that denies the legitimacy that you even make a difference, that you don't even register. And I have felt that. I have felt, man, and it smarts mm. and it hurts. Um, and, and I still have to take it upon myself. Let me interject myself in that circle. Let me talk to the person. Let me speak first. And they're talking to each other as if their worlds are full of their own, you know, joy and, and ecstasy and about the things uh, that they are occupied by, as if the world in which I exist has no meaning, doesn't matter, not curious about me in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think 
that's the kind of parallel in everyday fashion by well-meaning uh, white brothers and sisters not intending any harm, hurt, or danger to come to me, but are blithely indifferent or blissfully ignorant yeah. of the means, of the pains, of the struggles, of the very bodies and existence of Black people. Yeah, that kind of willful not knowing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me like there's nothing new going on, but now it can be proven through video, right? Now, mm-hmm. uh, up until now, as long as that happened over there and kept you over there and kept my equity high and kept my neighborhood uh, mm-hmm. borders patrolled right. and so forth, I could turn away from it. Uh, we really can't turn away from it now. Do you see this moment? as any different from other moments in the past, right? There was a time when North Northern white folks suddenly saw the fire hoses and the dogs, and that was a really galvanizing moment. Right. Um, and, and I think that the George Floyd video at the same time that we had Ahmaud Arbery killed, uh, right. Breonna Taylor and so forth. Mm-hmm. Do you, this is a, a galvanizing moment. What should we be careful about or pay attention to? Because we have been similar places before. Right. No, great point. You know, there have been big arguments in philosophical circles about uh, the use of sight, of the optic nerve, of, mm-hmm. op, you know, uh, as the basis, as the grounding metaphor uh, for knowledge, ocular centrism, mm-hmm. where we see that epistemic authority is derived from the ability to see uh, when Richard Gordy talked about the mind as a glassy essence, speaking about and echoing uh, Cartesian epistemologies and stuff. I don't want to get all nerdy about it, but it's these these big arguments in 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 intellectual circles and in the what they call the Geisteswissenschaften, the the humanities, right? Uh, where where the the quote non hard sciences uh, and where there have been arguments about that knowledge and it's based upon who you see and I mean, what you see and how the mind is uh, performing and, and, and how the, the sight of a particular reality mediates a certain conception of truth. I think about that when it comes to this, these arguments about epistemology that I've uh, so poorly and crudely been reductive about, but I think about them when I think about what we see suddenly, a kind of Cartesian dualism between, you know, the self and the other, you know, um, and when white brothers and sisters, when black folk finally dipped the horizon, pierced the fog, uh, become visible to them, become known to them, the optic nerve registers their presence, a glancing blow against that optic nerve, a dark apparition appears. And this is everything from Taylor Branch's opening about race and the optic nerve in his masterly trilogy of Dr. King um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, Richard Rorty, who I've mentioned, or Descartes, and about art and, and more generally. <clears throat> All of this comes together when you see you know, white folk finally seeing black folk and finally an, an invisible man with uh, Ralph Ellison, finally seeing us as real people, as existing figures and knowing for the first time there's a Gutenberg shift in consciousness through the mechanism 
of this smartphone. The smartphone has revolutionized relations in a certain way because now we are just, you know, dime store uh, Steven, Goo, uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's, right? We're, we're, we're pavement Spike Lee's and we command the, you know, I, I think a Soderbergh has made an entire film on an iPhone. So, uh, you know, he takes back what the popular has taken back from his own genre and he returns the favor by using their, um, their mechanisms and their machinery uh, for his own end. So now everyday people can take a darn smartphone and prove empirical verification, empirical, a big word that means that which can be falsified or verified through the senses. Can you see it? Can you touch it? Can you smell it? Can you taste it? Right. Can you hear it? And so and so, you know, black folk have been saying this is what happens. Oh, you must you must have said something. Come on, Mike. You must have been nasty to that police. Well, we see white folk nasty with the police every day and don't die. Mm -hmm. So first of all, even beginning with that premise, you must have spoken out of turn. White folk do it every day. Mm -hmm. Never hurt. Never bothered seen as, oh my God, they're kind of expressive today, but never demonized in a certain fundamental fashion, right? They live, the police don't seem to shoot them with the same alacrity, with the same disregard as they do for a black person who messes up just a little bit, steps a little bit over the line. And so you must've done something. And then the, the tape shows, the video shows, the recording shows the tape of Rodney King, the video of George Floyd, I think white people were so upset because, wait a minute, all of the, the memes, all of the tropes, all of the stereotypes, he was running and I, and I felt for my, I, I was scared. He, 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 he pulled my gun and, and was about to use it against me. So I had to shoot him with my second gun, the one that I usually throw down to frame him. Uh, there was something else happening where I was afraid for my life. The man is beneath the knee of Mr. Chauvin, of Officer Chauvin. And many white people said, there ain't no excuse left. He is laying prostrate on the ground. We couldn't even take measure of his impressive physical character, stature, six foot six black man who could have been a professional basketball player. Deep friends with Stephen Jackson, a great basketball player, professional himself, played for 14, 15 years in the NBA and said to be his twin uh, in terms of looks. So, so, so now this man laying prostrate on the ground and white brothers and sisters saw this. Yes, there is a reckoning because for the first time, many of them went, aha, a, a racial eureka moment. Now I get it. Now I understand it. Now I see what black people are saying. And now there's nothing they can tell me. The man was not, George Floyd was going, Officer, officer, he's calling them officer as he is laying prostrate on the ground, dying beneath the weight. Not only uh, Officer Chauvin, Officer King and Officer Lane, black officer in his back, white officer on his legs. This gives the lie to multiculturalism and multiracialism at a certain level and certainly diversity without equity. Mm -hmm. Two white cops, a black cop and an Asian cop help kill George Floyd. This is diversity without equity. This is the nightmare of having multiple strains of racial tyranny 
articulated on the body of a black person that the only agreement is among that radical diversity of ethnicities is that that black body must be contained. So that the internalized oppression of white supremacy has seduced the multiracial lineup where diversity becomes a handmaiden for subordination and oppression. And so many white folk, because they were home, on their screens, on their computers, on their iPads, on their iPhones, and because of the pandemic, got a chance to see another pandemic. The global pandemic of a virus forced them to see the racial pandemic of anti-Blackness in their own homes, on their own screens. And that sent a bunch of white folk into the streets. The swelling of the numbers so that it is the greatest um, struggle against white supremacy and the greatest, but even more particularly, the greatest movement for social justice, the greatest protests that we have seen is because white bodies were involved, were invested. White folk were shook, were challenged, and to a certain degree felt that they had to do something that was marked, that was obvious, that to counteract the the routine invisibility of blackness. Think about Hannah Arendt, the when she talked about uh, the the way in which evil the root is routinized, so to speak, the ben, the banality yeah. of evil, right? The routinization of it, the 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 unmasked. It's every day. It's Eichmann, who's an apparatchik of the state. It's not some person at the top dictating terms. It has filtered down to the everyday level. The quotidian is the instrument of a kind of uh, inequality and a kind, in this, in, in their case of evil, and in this case, evil as well, to snuff this man's life. The man just doing his job. These are cops just doing their jobs. This is not the KKK. This is not the White Citizens Council. This is not the Proud Boys. These are the police. This is Eichmann. Not in Jerusalem, but in Minnesota. This is, this is the way in which the ordinary practices of the state are reified and reinforced, articulated through the practices of the ordinary carrying out of job of officers doing their job and it is to murder and contain blackness. So white folk hit the street. I think there's a point of reckoning, yes. But here's the problem. That was six months ago. Every day on television, we are dealing with systemic racism. <laughs> Robin D'Angelo, number one bestseller. You still selling, so I ain't trying to hate. You still <laughs> You still sell. But, you know, Ibram Kendi, you know, every now and again, Michael Eric Dyson's book, uh, Tears We Cannot Stop. Right. Uh, uh ta Coates. And, you know, books are now selling. People are interested. People are invested. People are engaged. They're thinking. They're studying. They're remarking upon life. It's beautiful. Then it disappears, right? And it's beautiful because white people say we're going to make a difference. They have blackout blackouts on social media. They have Black Lives Matter inscribed on their buildings. They take it seriously at their places of work. They say we are committed. We're going to give budgets and money. But like a funeral, and I've been a Baptist preacher for 41 years, 
when the loved ones of those who have died are paid attention to, flowers come to them. We have a funeral. Oh my God, I'm so sorry for your loss. And we love them. The hardest part is always two or three months later mm-hmm. when all of the cards are gone, all the flowers, mm-hmm. their fragrant, their fragrance communicating a kind of empathy mm-hmm. have dissipated. And there is no one there to deal with the the hurt and trauma you endure. That's where Black America is now. Mm-hmm. White America attended the funeral of one of our loved ones and they expressed outrage and they expressed horror at the fact. But now six months later, these things have disappeared. So the only way we can reckon, and my book wasn't saying that the reckoning is here. My book is saying the reckoning must come. And the reckoning is like conversion. Since I'm talking about being a Baptist preacher, you don't just get converted one time. Oh, I met Jesus one day and that's it. Or whatever your religious experience is, if you have one, you've got to keep reaffirming it. You've got to keep reassigning value to it. It's like romance. Race and romance have similar traits. Yeah, you know, uh, white folk were in love with us in the romance of white and blackness. We love you. That was that moment of Black Lives Matter. We love you hitting the streets, even dying for us. Mm-hmm. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, the two men who died in the Black Lives Matter protests were white men. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just theory. They put their bodies on the line, on the front line to die like Heather Heyer did. Now, mm-hmm. we know ordinarily it's black and brown people, Latinx and indigenous people who die all the time, who never get recognition. So we're not elevating those deaths upon other deaths, but we're not going to destabilize. Or, In one sense, we're not going to uh, uh, take away the value and the importance of that white life being lost either. But... The romance, we love you, we adore you, we Black Lives Matter you, you make a difference, we see you. Then, you know, in romance, well, after a while, you know, he don't open the door no more. He ain't standing up when I come into the room. She ain't really trying to hook me up like I want to be hooked up on the extra toilet paper roll she gets when she goes out, right? We ain't, you know, the signifiers, but they get deeper. In the interim between the ignition of romance and the long lasting love that stretches out our awkward periods. And that's where we are when you're trying to find your love language. Does it mean I don't love you anymore? Does it mean we're not connected anymore? Does it mean that we are now to get a divorce because I don't feel about you the way I felt about you then? No, it means it's getting deeper and you've got to stay in the relationship long enough to see the long term benefits. Now, black folk been in America for a long time. We've been looking for lovers in white America for a long time, sometimes literally. <laughs> Dr. Kingsley, we're not trying to be your brother-in-law. We're just trying to be your brother. No, Dr. King, I'm trying to be the brother-in-law. <laughs> so, but the thing is, is that we've been here in a relationship up and down, back and forth, and white and black. And, and we know that the black-white divide is not exclusive in terms of race. We know that race is much bigger. Latinx, uh, you know, peoples and, and how complicated and nuanced that is to be a white um, Latino from, if you're a white, uh, you know, Cuban from Miami is different than being a black Dominican from Harlem and Washington Heights, 
right? Mm -hmm. So we know that even within Latinx communities themselves, there are fragments and cultures that are differentiated according to color. But, but with all of these differences, we know that the white-black divide is not the only one, but the white-black divide has been the major artery through which the blood of bigotry has flowed through the body politic from the beginning of this nation and even before. So we don't want to, as we acknowledge the complicated, nuanced convergence of multiplicities of identities, we don't want to deny the fundamental basic truth that even lighter versus darker in Latinx communities makes a difference. Race plays a difference among ethnicities or similar ethnicities as well. So my point simply is that yes, there is a reckoning, but we're at the point now of the long lasting long existing love affair that must have not just episodes of ecstasy like when George Floyd died or the mourning that attends black trauma, but how do we on an everyday level, what do we do in corporate America? How do we do with our schools? How do we pay attention to difference in our relationships? How do we go to our homes when we go home for Thanksgiving or Hanukkah or Christmas and we confront the bigoted people we love? and tell them the truth and say, no, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And so all of that is real. I think the reckoning's possibility is here, but we have to intentionally do it. And as you pointed out in your brilliant work, and I've talked about, Dr. Jennifer Wiley talks about now in her work as uh, an expert and a consultant, you know, it takes all of us writing, thinking, reading, reflecting, digging into the depths and resources, recesses of what whiteness means and what blackness means and what Americanness means, and then excavating from that enormous possibilities that can help us redeem this nation and make the racial reckoning that is necessary a reality. Thank you. Well, I know they're going to want to ask questions. I so want to hear you riff just a little bit and then I'm turning it over on cancel culture because I think it's connected. As someone who speaks about race, don't I know you cannot get it right by everybody. Right. Uh, so can you just give us a minute or two? Yeah. I'll just riff a little bit. Look, I want to cancel cancel culture. Let me just put it that way. Right. It's there a lot go. more complicated than that. Look, I understand why cancel culture involves two arenas that we can't get right. Race and gender and sex, right? We, we just can't get it right. Yeah. And it's difficult. It's complicated. It's nuanced. And so I understand why people want to cancel somebody, why you want to cancel Harvey Weinstein or you want to cancel Bill Cosby. You want to cancel R. Kelly. I get it. But most of the canceling is parallel. It's yeah. horizontal. We ain't, we ain't getting at big figures like that. And we have to have spectra. We have to have spectrums. We have to have cont continuums and continuum. We got to be able to say that Aziz Ansari ain't the same as Harvey Weinstein. And we've got to understand that you can't adjudicate a bad date through the automatic discourse of me too. That racial reckoning can't happen where you begin to witch hunt people. Hey, you're a white guy. Did you use the N word 20 years ago? Probably did. Right. When we, you know, probably did, you know, and don't act like you ain't known that that's a problematic and racist thing. But where are you now? What are you doing now? Imagine if you were a 13 year old kid saying some stupid stuff, even some racist stuff. And then you get drafted by the NBA and your stuff comes to light. Are we going to cancel that kid like you're done? No possibility of having a future. Now, if he still believes that we can have at it. But if he says that was some dumb stuff I said back then. Just like you listening to some dumb, sexist, misogynistic music, 
right? In hip hop that you, you know, that you just now are coming to grips with. I just don't think that that we should cancel human beings. I think it's white supremacy by proxy. I think it's ad admiring. You know, the Bible says that I read, envy not the way of your oppressors. And cancel culture is envying white supremacy, its ability to eviscerate and to eradicate. I don't want to cancel people. I want to charge them. I want to challenge them. I want to come at them. I want to hold them accountable. But I want to provide opportunities for them to be restored and redeemed. I believe in restorative justice, not retributive justice. An old preacher, uh, one of the greatest preachers ever that I picked up once uh, from his hotel room to take him to church um, and in my car. And I was a kid, 21 years old. And I was assigned to pick him up that day. And in the hotel room, as he was collecting his um, suitcase, he said, young man, uh, when, it's, when you're young, it's easy to damn the heat pile of humanity. It's easy to tell people they're going to hell. It's easy for you to pronounce judgment over their lives. He says, but when you get older, you know, it's better to try to get into the heat pile with the people and help them get the way out figure how they can get out from the madness and the morass into which they have been thrown. And he says, the older I get, the more I preach about grace. Then he paused and he said, maybe it's because I need more of it. I'm a Baptist preacher. I need grace. I need understanding. We all going to mess up. Don't wait and see. Well, Dyson is talking about, you know, racial oppression and speaking about gender oppression and identifies with women. What has he done? And is a, a bunch of stuff that's messed up. Trust and believe, you know, and I ain't telling you for free. <laughs> you know, and I don't want you digging it up either. <laughs> so the thing is, is that none of us are perfect. And cancel culture is, as Margaret Atwood warned us, when we begin to adjudicate competing claims about truth or justice on the Internet, it's messed up. As jacked up as the criminal justice system is, I'll take my chances of having a judge and a prosecutor and a defense lawyer than the mob, the digital mob of cancel culture. They ain't trying to hear, well, wait a minute, is, is another aspect of Robin D'Angelo? No, she said this, and she has to be canceled, and she is wrong. Wait, wait a minute, what did she say? Did you ask her? Did you ask people around her? Is there some countervailing narrative? Is your narrative? No, it is the lynch mob that they use to kill Emmett Till, that they use to lynch black people that is digitally appropriated. Now, I don't want you to think I'm being hyperbolic. I'm selling, saying to you, though, people's careers have been killed. Yes. People have been disappeared like Pinochet. Mm -hmm. They have been evaporated. And I think it's deeply and profoundly problematic. Held to account, yes. Consequences suffered, yes. But to disappear people and to eradicate, to eviscerate, and to erase them is the ambition of white supremacy reduced to, ironically and paradoxically, black thought in digital space. It is the lynch mob. It is the digital, it is the digital erasure of white by means of a white supremacist ideal that I think has to be checked, challenged, and gotten rid of. Thank you. Uh, I think Candace, do you have any questions? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Dyson. Um, we do have a lot of questions. We're obviously not going to get to all of them. Mm -hmm. A thread that I see through a lot of the questions is at least a recognition that it is in our institutions. At the institutional level is where a lot of big change needs to happen. Right. I wonder if we can begin to address some of that uh, thread of thinking 
by going mm. back to what you started with, um, can maybe both of you describe a little bit of what you um, see as white culture? What are like some of the main elements? Because I think that's something that a lot of us struggle to even see. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll defer to Robin D'Angelo yeah, on that. Um, I think well, white culture uh, has us cut off from ourselves and from our emotions. Uh, it, it denies us our history. It denies us the ability to see the humanity in others. It gives us a false sense of superiority. You know, I was thinking about this a lot I was as, as I was listening to you, Michael, how much white people project onto black people the very things that we can't look at in ourselves. Mm. Right? Mm. Who's lazy? Excuse me. Right. Mm. Uh, who's looting and robbing? Uh, who's criminal? Um, you know, uh, it, it denies us an authentic understanding of ourselves in the sense of meritocracy, right? If you tell me that I inherently deserve to have the best of everything and, the, and that I, I have that because I earned it, um, you're going to set me up for a lot of, well, not just self-delusion, but a lot of resentment uh, and contempt. And it also makes us highly manipulable. Um, that we go against our best interest. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's white culture that is keeping us from universal health care, uh, from uh, universal education, from things that would benefit so many people. Um, but we get confused, and we're looking here and not looking here. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are just some quick thoughts. I'd love to hear what you have to say, Michael. Yeah. yeah well, well, so funny. funny. I was uh, listening to. Uh, uh, David Rodiger once, I think we we're in a conversation, he's written uh, brilliantly as well as a historian about race. And he said he was asking his class once, he says, so so y'all talking about, you know, we, we got black people and black history. What about white history? What about white history? Now, you know, that's every other month, bruh, <laughs> basically. And that's every other day, right? White history is American history. This is the This is the problem, right? Because whiteness is seen as invisible. Because whiteness is not outed as one among many other ethnicities and races, right? A con- an agglomerate of ethnicities pulverized in the crucible of, of race into whiteness, right? The transmogrification into whiteness, the alchemical uh, transformations that produce whiteness out of diverse and distinct ethnicities. But what's interesting is that uh, when you look at the fact that whiteness is seen as invisible, therefore, and if it's invisible, it's seen as universal. Because when we think race, white brothers and sisters think, you know, we're talking about Latinx, talking about black people, talking about brown. No, we're talking about white folk too, right? In the same way, men don't think about gender. They think about, oh yeah, you're talking about women. No, you got a gender too. Mm-hmm. But it's been a race. It's been it's been invisibilized, and therefore your normative case. That's why for a long time in the English language, he stood for him and her, mm-hmm. right? That's why it's good to have these pronouns announced. People begin to choose their own pronomial pronunciation of their identities. The predicate through the pronouns is a beautiful move. Um, and so uh, so whiteness is seen as universal because it's been rendered invisible. So white people get upset. Why do you got to talk about, why can't you just be American? Which they mean, why can't you be white like me? But whiteness has been rendered as universal. As the great philosopher Beyonce said, the, the it has been said that racism is so American that if you challenge racism, it looks like you're challenging America. So David Rodiger said, he asked his students, he challenged them, since you talking about what about if we had a white history month or a white 
museum. He said, what would you put, who would belong in a white museum, right? <laughs> who, would, who would belong in white culture? And they looked around and they said, well, Elvis Presley. And they get, you know, and then, of course, Rodiger and I get the joke, like Elvis, who was as black a white man as one might imagine in terms of his uh, cultural borrowings and the influence uh, uh, on him and the blues music and like, even white is black, right? Even whiteness owes a debt to blackness. It is fluid. It's voluble. It is articulate of a certain kind of constantly evolving reality that is never set. So just as much when Robin said, I think quite insightfully there, the projection onto black bodies of what whiteness is, it's like a Pee Wee Herman moment. I know I am. I know I am. But what are you? <laughs> I know you are. But what am I? Right. Uh, that's what you are. You're telling me. All right. I'm rubber. You glue. Everything you say bounces off to me and sticks to you. So you're projecting, right? And believe me, that kind of toddlerocracy that Donald Trump practices is real. Uh, so it bounces off of us, it bounces onto the other, but it's really a projection of what whiteness is onto the other. And the lapses, the lack of efficiency, the, the horrible sense of, of uh, lost self-confidence that is, that is dressed up as arrogance, I think, is manifest there. So yeah, for me, whiteness is a, a, a project that is constantly evolving, but it has some uh, a thread going through it. As Robin has brilliantly talked about, it's about supremacy, it's about superiority, it's about the myth of you know stability and 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 a kind of uh, inherent ingenuity. But I'll tell you one thing: if nothing else, the presidency of Donald Trump has once and for all should have been uh, true. Put the death nail to white supremacy and white superiority. If that's what's supposed to be superior and that's whiteness, dog. <laughs> and we've got to thank God for the kind of Duridian deconstruction uh, that was seen through Donald Trump of unmasking whiteness and showing just how hollow, how childish, how impish, how insufficient, and how unprepared it is for the broader world in which we live. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the institutions I think maybe you could touch on that um, we haven't yet this evening is uh, been questioned a couple times in here. Uh, one question from Nima and one from Craig about school systems um, trying to um, re, uh, re, redo the way that we teach history um, in America? How do we reckon with race in our school systems and how do we prioritize the teaching or um, mandate the teaching of uh, black history in our schools? Well, I know Robin's got something to say. I'll briefly say this. Look, you got to treat it like anything. You got to treat it like it's part of the history, not just a sub subsection, right? Um, black people are, are American history from the get-go, right? Now, do we need to turn to one of our greatest historians, Stevie Wonder? First man to die for the flag we now hold high was a black man. He's teaching you, right? Look, Listen to black man, which talks about many other races and ethnicities, right, as is want, as, as black people are wont to do, to be generous and gracious in not only talking about blackness, but talking about the whole range of BIPOC or, you know, diverse ethnicities and races. But look, black folk been there from the jump. So when you talk about black people, you're talking about American history. But it has been the willful denial of blackness, right? As Gore Vidal said, we live in the United States of amnesia. And what's interesting to me is that 
White folk can't get enough of history when it's about George Washington or Aaron Burr or the founding fathers and the founding mothers and about you know what ships were built 200 years ago and what about Abigail Van Buren was doing and what the president was you know talking about and, uh, and Abraham Lincoln or Benjamin Franklin or the like. And it's beautiful and I get it. But boy, when it comes to race, when it comes to black people, can't you people get over it? Why do you keep talking about that? This said from a culture that reenacts the Civil War every year. Bruh, it's over. I don't think it's still going on, except it is. And this, what, what the South has proved, they lost the war but won the battle of interpretation. And I think that's where schools have to be especially insightful through their pedagogical uh, practices, through the textbook makers in Texas, who you know give one paragraph to slavery and black culture is reduced to Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech and Obama is president. Oh, by the way, that's it. So I think we have to do some serious uh, interrogation of the institutional matri institutional matrices that contain the desire to be educated. But schooling is different from education. You know, education is the lifelong practice of learning and evolving in your understanding. Schooling is the attempt to institutionalize the impulse toward education. And I think in that sense, we have to be very deliberate and very intentional about what we do to integrate uh, black identity, black ideas and black institutions into the larger fabric of American society and history. <laughs> uh, it's a huge question, right? I mean, we are talking about uh, changing the structure of education. We need a revolution in education. I think it's going to take a little bit of civil unrest. It's going to take teachers saying, I can't teach truncated history. I can't teach a false history. We can never understand history and separate out what we call Black history, as if that occurred in a vacuum and isn't American history. Uh, and, and they're going to have to hold firm and say, I can't teach that. And parents are going to have to demand that we are taught our true history. And so that, you know, it, it keeps coming back to each one of us has to play a role in pushing this forward. Um, we have a question here from Deborah. Um, Dr. Dyson, can you share your thoughts on reparations? Yep, we need them. Let's get them as soon as we can. What's up with the delay? <laughs> I mean, look, we've had reparations in many parts of the world. They are due. They are old. Uh, they are legitimate. Uh, there are many ways to do them. There are many ways to think about them. Uh, it was remarkable during the last presidential uh, you know, round of debates before uh, Joe Biden was chosen as the Democratic nominee, where we were having serious conversation about whether or not reparations should come forward. That's another part of that. We were reckoning with race six months ago. We'll see how reparations gets on the docket uh, under this new president uh, about whom I have for whom I have great respect and for whom I hold great hope, actually. Um, but reparations are critical. They're vital. They're necessary. They are part of the moral vocabulary of any culture and the political um, uh, integrity of a culture. After all, white supremacy, apartheid and racism were governmental projects that were supported by law. The Supreme Court in 1857, Roger B. Taney, the chief justice said white people, black people have no rights that white people are bound to respect. It was written and inscribed into the law. We were taken as property. Forget having it. We were treated as property, as chattel, as cattle. We were treated as things. 
we were dehumanized in such systemic fashion that we have yet to regain our standing in a culture that fails to acknowledge not only our humanity, but the necessity of returning to us that which has been stolen. So reparations are a fundamental and foundational element of what we need to do in this country. And we've got to have some serious arguments, some serious uh, advance and some serious strategies for how they will be um, distributed, how they will be conceived and how uh, America has to grapple finally with that issue in order to be mature and whole. Thank you. Um, I think that uh, I might just close and ask you both to um, give your thoughts on, uh, you know, the the next few months and years. Um, this seems to be one of those moments in history where we have a, a chance to really change and a chance to uh, really take take a turn in a different direction. Um, and I wonder if you can just um, leave us with your your thoughts on. Um, uh, how much hope you have uh, that that will come to fruition and um, and maybe where you see it happening most. Um, yeah, most. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll go first so you have the last word. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this when you were talking about the moment we're in and what happens six months later or when it's not so easy and it's not so, for lack of a better word, stylish. Um mm. You know, if we don't put supports around ourselves, the forces of comfort for white people are so seductive and so powerful. And I don't know that we can sustain it individually, which is also an aspect of white cultures, individualism. We kind of see, you know, each of us is separate from everyone else and I can just do this on my own. And it has to be a collective project. We have to organize and we have to surround ourselves with pressures and with people and with accountability that will keep Keep us going um, when things it begins to get inconvenient and uncomfortable. We have to actually embrace that and want that. And I, I just can't say it enough that I don't think we can do that by ourselves. We have to find other people, be in community with them, keep reading those books, keep doing those uh, work worksheets and workshops, and uh, get get involved and stay involved. Well, amen. That's a beautiful place to uh, to end. I'll just simply add that uh, on top of all of that, which is extraordinary, um, we've got to find a way in this nation to, at the end of the day, treat the other as you yourself would like to be treated. And it sounds like the golden rule. It sounds like it's real simple. It sounds like that's what we think we do, but we don't. Um, There was you know, a recent book written about the American dilemma, right? The new racial American dilemma. And the author argued, it's not what white folk do against black people and others that is the same as 60 and 70 years ago. There's no undeniable change in progress. It's what white folk do for each other that they don't do for others that makes a difference. And What white brothers and sisters do for each other is what we want done for us in the most positive and edifying sense, not the destructive stuff, not the hateful stuff, not the real housewives of Beverly Hills stuff, (laughs) right? Not the Donald Trump stuff, 
but we're talking about the more edifying aspects of a culture where there is fundamental regard and decency that is in play when dealing with each other, consideration, giving breaks to, giving allowances to, conceding, making concessions to. And so, you know, it's like that old Eddie Murphy uh, Saturday Night Live skit where he's dressed up as a white man, right? And he's a banker. And when the black people come in, you know, it's all kind of reasons why they can't get the money. And then finally, you know, when he, he dresses up as a white man and he goes to the bank and the banker, instead of telling the black people, nope, can't get that loan. Nope. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Eddie Murphy goes in dressed up like a white man. Here, take it. Take all the money. My Jiminy Cricket, take it all. Right. <laughs> just because you white, just because you show up and just because you and I are white and have a language, an unspoken language. Now, that's obviously a hyperbolic artistic exaggeration, but it contains a profound truth. Can we get what the white cop did to the white man who had the gun? Can we not express to you our profound pain that we are so, as a people, so desiring simply to live so that white brothers and sisters don't keep imposing upon us the lethal limits of racialized consciousness that most black people are trying to escape from. And they say, why do you people keep talking about race? Because you never let us forget that we are black, inferior, undesirable, ultimately not matching up. Oh, you love LeBron. Oh, you love Michael Jordan and Kobe. Oh, you love Serena. You love Beyonce until you discover she's black. Jay-Z until they're black, until they get tarred and feathered by those who are outraged that these people come from real communities. Most black people are moderate and conservative. I argue with most of them in churches and theologically and philosophically. I don't agree with them, but I know them. I love them. I come from them which means they're more like white people than white people will ever acknowledge. There would be far more black Republicans if there weren't such vicious pockets of hatred for blackness where white people have shown their asses and what their asses are and what their assets are, and they are the same, <laughs> that they will worship whiteness above anything else above party, above culture, above politics, above country. How else can we explain that Donald Trump still to this day, as of this recording, has not received a public rebuff from Mitch McConnell or for Lindsey Graham who is doing his huckstering for him Please spare us any more, white people, white Republicans that claim that you love this country and how dare you, Colin Kaepernick, bow down and disgrace the flag. You are the disgrace. You have refused to live up to the high ideals, the noble aspirations, the mighty perceptions of an undeniably flawed but ambitious group of men and women 
who forged compact in the dusty shores of their memories, of our memories, as they gathered together under the rubric of a nation, the fractious identities and the combustible energies of democracy and took a risk on each other in founding a nation. Yes, even as they denied legitimacy to women, even as they denied access to black people in America. But the beauty of black people is that we take the leftovers and crumbs of your democracy and put together the greatest feast from which you can now dine. And so what we want is to be treated like you, to be given the benefit of the doubt to be mediocre, as Ijeoma Olua in her new brilliant book talks about. Mediocre white men running the world. You ain't interested in intelligence and skill. And so at that level, I think it is extremely important for us to understand that what we want as people is what you want. Malcolm X says, don't ask me what I will do. When I'm in this situation, ask yourself what you would do. And then I'm going to do the same thing, except more of it. Now, he said that in a way that probably threatened people, but take it as an acknowledgement. That we love and desire humanity. And I'll end by saying this. It's not that I think one of the white things that white people fear is that black people will do to you what you've done to us. Mm-hmm. That we would be vengeful. No that we would be hateful, no, that we will, even when nine of our people die in a church, before the bodies are cold, we will express forgiveness for the person who murdered them. This is not an exception. This is not an asterisk of black awareness. This is who we are. We are a mighty, majestic, and great people. We love and embrace this country despite its flaws. And we want the same in return. I am hopeful because as a Christian, I don't believe, as Rhino Niebuhr said, in optimism, which is a shallow virtue. Which way? Okay, I feel good. To, nah, wind's coming. No. Hope says, wind blowing, water's dashing against the rocks. We say, nope, we're standing right here. We ain't going nowhere. We believe in America. Black people are Jim Clyburn. White America is Joe Biden. And we've been saving you from the beginning. When Jim Clyburn said, we know Joe. We appreciate Joe. But much better, Joe knows us. This is the beauty of who we are as a people. When we know America and at your best, we know that you can find a way to know yourselves well enough to accept and love us. That's my hope. And I can continue to invest in it uh, despite the negativity that I see. I think we can overcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I think I can speak for the whole audience <laughs> to say that uh, we'd be happy to stay here uh, much longer and hear you, Dr. Dyson. Um, I want to thank both of you for presenting with us tonight and for um, attending to, you know, the heart and soul of America as you have. Um, thank you for your work and uh, everything that you do.
Um, I, I want to thank the audience here as well for uh, joining us tonight. I want to encourage you to purchase a copy of Dr. Dyson's book. Um, you know, support a local bookstore <laughs> if you can. Uh, the link we have here goes to Bookshop, which is an Amazon alternative. Um, but, you know, support your local store if you can. Um, I also want to just mention, you know, uh, Town Hall is very early in its understanding of how to be an anti-racist organization, but I think there were some questions um, coming up in the, in the list that might suggest people are looking for things to look to, um, maybe particularly locally. So feel free to reach out um, to Town Hall and we can, we can try and work together and find, uh, find those resources for you. Um, again, thank you both so much. Um, this has been such a wonderful evening and I hope you both stay safe and have a great, have a great night. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. Thank Anytime, you. Michael. Anytime. Appreciate it. Bye. Thank you, Town Hall. Michael Eric Dyson spoke with Robin D'Angelo in this Town Hall Seattle event on December 8th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org, and click on the podcast tab. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.